Good morning. This morning is the start of many new exciting things. We have youth groups starting this week. Children are advancing in classes. We have community group signups out in the commons. There's a lot of exciting things. And I have the privilege of announcing one more thing that I'm very excited about, and I hope you are as well. This morning is the start of a year together in the New City Catechism. And I realize that being in southeast Wisconsin, you may have, some of you may have backgrounds where the word catechism does not sound excited to, exciting to you at all. And I hope that as we work through this and we study this, that, that your opinion of catechism changes. I also realize that some of you may have no background in this at all, and you as well, I hope that this can be a time of joyful learning uh, the doctrines that we see laid out in scripture. Uh, I sent out an email on this, uh, I think two weeks ago, but catechism is simply the passing on of sound doctrine in an organized way. And this is, this is a biblical concept. We see it all throughout the New Testament as we see the apostles writing about things being passed on like the doctrines, the gospel, the faith, and the teachings, and the traditions. And so I want you to see this morning, this isn't just something that's man-made. This is something that the apostles and the early disciples did regularly so they could train up young and new disciples in sound doctrine so that they would not be deceived and so that they could grow in joy of knowing the Lord. And so in our year through the New City Catechism, we'll be doing a few things. And I did, there's three main things that we'll be working through. Number one is we'll be reciting the catechism question and answer together in church on Sunday mornings for the whole year, uh, where there will be a, a leader up here reading, and you will be reading it as a responsive reading, the, the answer you'll be reading. Uh, the same questions, and I'm really excited about this because I oversee children's ministry. The same doctrine that you'll be reciting here in church is what the children are going to be studying in Sunday school classes. So this, this will promote awesome conversation in the car after church where you can talk about what you recited in corporate worship, what your kids were learning in class. And I hope that this fuels some family discipleship, which leads into the third point, which is we're encouraging every person in the church, young and old, single, married, married with children, married with 10 kids, to all consider incorporating the New City Catechism into your devotions throughout the week. And in the email I sent out, there was a suggestion for five that you could do, and they are based on the New City Catechism app, which you can get for free on any uh, tablet, I, I, whatever, phone. Um, there's also a website you could go to that's free. And if you're just not into the technology, we do have it in print form at the book cart. Uh, there's a hardcover book. It's the white one. It says the New City Catechism Devotional. You could pick that up for a suggested donation of $10. And, and you could use these throughout the week, whether it's uh, with your kids or if you don't have kids, doing it on your own. We would love everyone in the church to be working through this, incorporating it into their devotions. And I just, I picture groups, community groups and various groups getting together and reflecting on these things together that they're learning. And it could be so wonderful. Um, I want to encourage you this morning to see this as a tool for increasing your joy in Christ. Okay, yes, this is a tool to gain more knowledge of the scripture, but if we're truly gaining knowledge of God, that should in turn produce worship and treasuring Christ and joy. Script, there's lots of scriptures that talk about increasing in the knowledge of God, and then you're bearing fruit, and you're increasing in love, and it gives a greater love to, and, an, and an even greater desire to learn more about God. And so I don't want you to see this as some dry thing that we're doing and wrote, but this is a joyful proclamation of the truths of scripture and who God is. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at question one together, and it's about how our only hope in life and beyond is that we belong to God in Jesus Christ. And so think about that. Our only hope is that we belong to God. That's our only hope. So how is that dry? So when we say this this morning, I would encourage you to proclaim this with joy. These are wonderful truths that our only hope is we belong to God in Christ. So at this time, I will read the question. It should come up on the screen. I will read the question, and please read the response with me. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, 
but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, there is quite a bit going on in the life of this church. So Jesse's already mentioned a, f- a few of the things. We were starting this, this trip through the, the New City Catechism together, which is a, a combining of many historic catechisms, and it will be, be a benefit. Um, I was one of those who grew up learning, uh, learning the catechism, and I hated it. I was not a Christian. And I, of course I hated these truths. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't desiring God. And then I became a Christian. And then I was reintroduced to the catechism. And my heart has grown with excitement through my, my engaging with catechism. And as a family, we've used this catechism and other catechisms. And I've seen great, great growth in my, my own children's understanding. They, they can, I won't put them on the spot, but they can recite many of these catechism questions, at least the kids' versions. And it's been a a great blessing to our family. So please get excited about the catechism. Other things going on in the life of the church. Uh, yesterday was the women's conference on holiness. We're in the middle of building a garage on the east side of the church building, which is, is, which is a great uh, endeavor we're excited about. Uh, next Sunday is the official start of our community groups, which explains why there's tables in the commons with pictures of people that lead the groups and all the details. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to, to know where these groups are, see some of these people, and then sign up today or next week, get into one of these community groups. Then adding to all of that... This morning, we will begin a new sermon series on the church that will take us through the winter months. I don't know where it'll end. We'll see. I kind of like a little bit of flexibility as we dig into some of these things to add something, even though that can sometimes cause a little bit of a, a difficulty for everybody up on here who's planning. But, but there'll be a little bit of flexibility, and, and we really want to dig into this series. And we've titled this series, Glory and Grace. And as you turn to this morning's passage, which is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, uh, if you're using the Pew Bible below the seats, you can find it on page 976. I, I think it's important for me to give you a little brief overview of this series so that you know where we will be going in the coming weeks and, and why we're going there. Now, there are two main reasons for this sermon series on the church. Well, first, this past spring, we, we started using a new mission statement, and now we want to provide more teaching that explains how we will accomplish this mission. And our mission is to to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and treasuring Christ above all. And so we did a teaching series on that mission statement, why this mission statement, how it summarizes, not in some unique way that we're, we're thinking we have the greatest mission statement ever as a church, but, but we believe it summarizes what the mission of the church is. That in, in a real way, any church that believes the gospel, loves the gospel, could adopt this mission statement. They might tweak a few words, add an adjective or two, but we believe this summarizes, uh, in general, the mission of the church. And now we need more teaching on how we're going to do that as a church. This is sometimes called, sometimes called or described the church as the church's vision. And this type of teaching will give us a clear understanding, will unite us together as we look forward and work together in accomplishing this mission. Second, we elders have seen the need for more in-depth teaching regarding important matters in church life. This would include corporate worship and baptism, the Lord's Supper, membership, church leadership, and church discipline, which is often misunderstood. Now, all of these things fall under the category of ecclesiology, which is a theological term that means the study of the church. So there you have it. These are the two reasons for this series on the church. We we want to provide more teaching on our church's vision for accomplishing the mission, and we want to provide more teaching on our church's ecclesiology. Now, these two areas are very much related to one another. What we believe the Bible teaches about corporate worship, baptism, the Lord's Supper, membership, church discipline, and church leadership will have a major impact on how we accomplish our church's mission together. But why then title this series Glory and Grace and not Vision and Ecclesiology? Well, the most superficial reason is I think glory and grace sounds better than vision and ecclesiology. I think uh, maybe it's just me, but somebody might hear, hey, we're doing a, a series at our church on vision and ecclesiology and think that we're doing a series on the study of optometry or something like that. So, so I, I want to, to, to get through that and not, not cause any confusion on what we're after. The real reason that we've titled this series Glory and Grace is because it captures the overall goal of this series. 
The church is a display of God's glory. The church is a people that experience God's grace together. So I want this, this goal, this, this reality, this truth to be in front of us. As a church, we want to better display God's glory and experience God's grace together. That's what we're after in this series, glory and grace. Now we're going to begin this series with three sermons on community because community is a major part of our vision for accomplishing the church's mission. And with our community groups beginning the week of September 16th, so next week, Sunday, uh, those groups will start to, to get going. This is the ideal time to preach on gospel community. And I believe that Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is the ideal passage to start with. So Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. I've given you plenty of time to turn there, but if you haven't already, please do. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances." that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens." but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. Now let's pray, because we need his help. Oh, glorious God, we have come to commune with you and your people. You are awesome. I love that word when we talk about you, God, because it captures the inability to, to with human language, get at the, the full reality of your glory. You are awesome. You are perfect in all your ways. You are holy and righteous and good and merciful and gracious. And may all those who have come to this church building and gathered into this sanctuary meet with you, the awesome, glorious God that we have come to worship this morning. Father, help us. We need your help. Lord, we are still struggling with sin. Even the most sanctified among us is struggling with sin. We need your spirit to reveal areas in our life that don't line up with your word. Father, this past week we have sinned in so many different ways. We have been lazy. We have not loved as you have called us to love. We have, we have thought about things that we should have not entertained. We have acted in such ways that dishonor your name. Please, Father, forgive us. And as we plead for forgiveness, we have confidence that you will forgive us because of your son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross so that we, your people, would be forgiven, justified, promised sanctification and one day glorification. We will be like him who was raised from the dead, our Savior. And so we rest in the promise of the gospel that we are truly forgiven in Christ. Lord, we give you thanks for, for sustaining us and strengthening us, for, for working in us, for your patience. Oh, how, how much I'm, I'm grateful for your patience that even as I and, and others struggle and, and go, seem to go backwards and we wrestle through sanctification, you never leave us or forsake us. You are a patient, faithful, loving God. May your people remember that this morning, even as we struggle with, with considering what it means to be a church and gospel community, what it looks like, how it affects our own personal lives. I pray for help in these areas that we would be a thankful people who grow in our love for you and for one another. Father, we lift up those in our church, in our families, who we know that, that are struggling with physical and emotional and, and, and spiritual matters. 
Lord, we pray for the people that we, we love who are outside of Christ. Father, use us and other Christians to, to winsomely and lovingly and boldly proclaim the glories of Christ, that those who are outside, who are far off, can be brought near by the gospel. We pray that you would help us to not shrink back from gospel opportunities when people, people that, that are so far from you are, are open to hearing more about Christ, that we would go forward and step out in faith and, and, and share the truth of Christ with them. Lord, we lift up those who are struggling with cancer and health issues, who are recovering from surgeries or, or are about to face a surgery. May they trust in you and may they take the, the opportunities you give them to, to share Christ as well. And now, Father, as I so often do, I pray that you would overcome the deficiencies in my preaching, that your word would go forth by the power of your spirit, and it would do what only you can do with your word by your spirit. Grow us, strengthen us, increase our passion for you and for your glory, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary gives this very simple but helpful definition of community. A community is a unified body of individuals. Now, as we know, there are a lot of different things that can unify individuals into a community. There are communities formed because individuals are united by a specific shared interest or passion. The, the biker community, think of, think of them. They're, they're made up of individuals united by their shared passion for motorcycles. The packer community, which many of us are part of, is made up of individuals who are united by a shared passion for the Green Bay Packers. There are music and gaming and skating and knitting communities. If people get excited about something, there's a community that, that ends up being formed around that something. Some communities come into being when individuals are united together for a certain cause or in pursuit of change. For instance, MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, is a community formed by mothers have made it their mission to end drunk driving and support those who have been affected by drunk driving. Other communities are formed by geographic location. Individuals who live in a certain area or a particular city are described as being part of a community. Think of the New Berlin community, the West Dallas community, the Brookfield community, the Milwaukee community. There are communities formed by individuals in the same profession or field, doctors and lawyers and electricians and carpenters and others who join together to support, educate, and assist one another. Then there are the communities that form because individuals share a common life experience. Some individuals who have, who have gone through war or faced similar tragedies, struggled with the same addictions, often form into a community. Now, turning our focus back to the church, among other things, the church is a community. The church is a unified body of individuals. Now, it's true that all who are truly part of the church will share the same interest and passion. God is our passion. That's why we have in our mission statement, he is our, Christ is our greatest treasure. We want to treasure him above all. And all who are members of the universal church have the same cause and pursuit. We all desire God and we want God to be glorified. And typically, the members of a local church will live in the same geographic or generally the same geographic location. According to Scripture, all Christians have the same profession. We're all servants of Christ. And every Christian has a shared experience. We have all been forgiven of our sin, justified by God's grace through faith in Christ. And yet the truth is that none of these things on their own cause individual people to be united into gospel community, a gospel community called the church. So where does this gospel community come from? How, how does it happen? Well, the answer is given to us in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. I'll give you the short answer and then we'll unpack it. It comes, this community comes in and through the work of Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who unites individuals together into a new gospel community, a gospel community called the church. Now, in order for us to truly appreciate this, we, we need to, as Paul says in verse 11, remember the disunity and the division that once existed before Jesus Christ. Look again at verses 11 and 12, where Paul describes the relationship between Gentiles and Jews prior to the work of Christ. Addressing Christians that come from non-Jewish ancestry, Paul writes in verse 11, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Here, Paul is, is pointing out 
the major physical difference between Gentiles and Jews that divided these two groups at circumcision, as well as the long-standing discrimination, even hatred, that existed between these two groups. It was true that the Gentiles were the uncircumcised, which meant that they were separated from the Lord. But this phrase, the uncircumcised, became a derogatory term used to communicate, in essence, what, what many Jews believed about the Gentiles. They belonged, as one commentator put it, on the trash heap of humanity. Yes, God had commanded the Jews to circumcise their sons, but, but they made this sign of the covenant a form of sinful pride. They, they, they looked at the Gentiles and said, you're, you're the uncircumcised. That was their, their view. That was the, the identity that they, they put on the Gentiles. They had forgotten, many of the Jews, that it was only by God's grace that they had entered into a covenant with God. At the same time, pagan Gentiles considered the practice of circumcision disgusting. Without going into detail, I, I think you can understand why. That's gross, they thought. Before the work of Christ, these two groups were separated physically by circumcision, but they were also separated emotionally, relationally. They viewed the other as dirty, as gross, as repulsive, as lesser human beings. But it wasn't just a physical and emotional or relational separation between the Gentiles and Jews. These two groups were divided spiritually. The Jews knew God, and they knew that God would send a Messiah, and they were praying for the Messiah. They are calling out to God, send the Messiah, we need a Messiah. But before Christ, the Gentiles were separated from Christ, Paul says. Now Paul's point here is that unlike the Jews who were longing for the Messiah, the Gentiles didn't know about Christ. They, they weren't waiting for, praying for, or looking for a Redeemer to come and save them because they didn't know that God had promised this Redeemer. The Gentiles were Christless because they didn't have God's word. They didn't have God's special revelation. They could look at the trees. They could look at the sky. They could hold a baby in their arms and say, there must be a creator, but they turned that into, there must be many creators. There must be many gods. God had given his special revelation, his word to the Jews, what we know as the Old Testament scriptures, which Christ said in John 5, 39, bear witness about him. The Old Testament scriptures are about Jesus and, and the Gentiles didn't have the scriptures. And so they didn't, they didn't have Christ. They were separate. They were far from him. Paul goes on to state that the Gentiles were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, which means they were excluded from God's people. They were not citizens in God's nation. This meant that they had no share in the blessings that God grants to his people. You think about citizenship. If you're a citizen in the United States of America, there are certain benefits and blessings and privileges that you have that those who are not citizens in this nation don't experience. The Gentiles didn't experience the blessings, the privileges, the honors that came with being a part of God's covenant people, Israel. The Gentiles were outsiders of the covenants of promise that God had made with Israel. God had made the nation of Israel out of nothing, and he entered into a covenant. And we're going to be talking about covenant in this series as well. And, and that covenant contained amazing blessings for those who kept the covenant, as well as curses or consequences if the covenant was broken. These blessings included God's favor a land, protection, and a relationship, which I think is the best part of the blessing of this covenant, a true relationship with the living, true God of the Bible. The nation of Israel had the unique and special honor of being God's chosen people. They were the only ones who truly knew and worshiped God rightly. Their creator and the savior of sinners was their God. Then Paul says that before Christ, the Gentiles had no hope and were without God in the world. Friends, this is a horrible position to be in, to have no hope. I don't know if you've ever had no hope or you know somebody who has no hope. It's, it's terrible. It's, it's sad. It's, it, it's, well, hopeless. You see, true, everlasting, real hope is found only in Christ, and it's only given to those who know and believe in Jesus. There's a superficial hope that you can experience in this world. I, I hope that I get this promotion. I hope that I get married. I hope that I have kids. I hope that I advance in my career. I hope, I hope, I hope. And then all those things come or go, or they never, they never happen, and, and then it's gone, and your life is over. You know, there's a hope that does not disappoint. There's a hope that is sure and steady as a rock that will never let you down, and that is Christ. And if you don't have Christ, well, you don't really have hope. 
And before Christ, the Gentiles were, were making their way through life with no true and lasting hope in this life or in the life to come, like the catechism question alluded to. Not just alluded, it made clear. Forget illusion. Here it is. What is your only hope in life and death? That we are not our own but belong to God. Well, the Gentiles didn't know that hope. They didn't have that hope. And so this is their condition before Christ. So just picture it. Gentiles being born into a fallen world. Gentile generation after generation after generation after generation. And they're going about their lives, some marrying, some having children, some farming, some working in the trades, but all of them experiencing hardships, sickness, going through suffering, watching family and friends die, and then facing death themselves, all while having no access to God, no access to God, no saving knowledge of the Lord. It was a truly hopeless position to be in. Now, this should remind many of us, in some ways, of the unreached people groups in the world right now who have no access to the gospel, who live in parts of the world where there are no churches, there are no Christians. We need to be praying for them, and as a church, we often do pray for those who, are, who, are, who have never heard the good news of the gospel. And as the Lord leads us as a church, we should be sending missionaries to these people groups, and we have, and, and we are, and we want to continue to do that. But the unreached today are not the same as the Gentiles before Christ. Today, those people groups that are unreached by God's grace can be reached with the gospel. Before Christ, there was no gospel to preach to the Gentiles. They were an unreached people group that could not be reached. And, and so they lived without God. They lived a hopeless and godless life. Sure, they worshipped many gods, but their false gods that they worshipped were helpless and useless. Their religion was a dead and worthless religion. And so before Christ, there was no possibility of gospel community. There was no possibility of true unity between Gentiles and Jews. The separation was horizontal between people and vertical between God. Gentiles were alienated from God and from his people. Friends, we, we see a lot of disunity today in the world. There are groups of people who are separated from one, from one another, alienated and estranged from one another. Some of us feel that in our own families, this, this disunity. We see it in the news. It's all over the place. But there's never been a separation and alienation and estrangement like the one that Paul describes here in verses 11 and 12. It was physical. It was emotional. It was spiritual. There was a barrier between Gentiles and Jews that no one could overcome, no one but God. And verses 13 through 18 explain how Christ did just that, how he removed the disunity and united two groups of people that hated one another, that were separated and alienated and estranged from one another, and he united them not just together but to God, creating this new gospel community that we know as the New Testament church. Paul tells us that those who are far off, the Gentiles, are brought near by the blood of Christ. So it is through the shedding of Christ's blood, Christ's atoning sacrifice for our sin, that God unites people together. Only through Christ's blood can people be reconciled to one another and to God. Because Jesus shed his blood, all who are far off that trust in Christ are now brought near. What a, what a sweet gospel reminder for us this morning, to rest in this morning together. In Christ, God has come to us and removed the distance between us and between him and between his people. It was not easy, this, this removal of the distance. It required Christ's blood. Sin is what separates us from God and from one another. When Christ shed his blood on the cross, he made atonement for our sin. It's beautiful. Some people want to distance themselves from this idea of Christ's blood being shed and it necessary for unity. There are what is known as, I don't mean politically, I mean theologically, liberal churches who have basically denied the importance of Christ's atoning work. Brothers and sisters, we got no unity. We got no church without the shed blood of Christ. And so as much as in our modern minds, it, it, it might be hard to... to to reconcile the need for the shedding of blood, it's the reality. It's consistent throughout Scripture. There is no unity without Christ's blood being shed. In verse 14, Paul says that Christ himself is our peace, meaning true and lasting peace comes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
Christ is the one who makes us one, who, who brings us together. We can be united by so many different things, as I mentioned in, in my opening introduction to the idea of community. It's crazy. You can be, you can be sitting next to strangers at, at, a, at an event, a sporting event, and if you have the same color on, if you're clapping for the same team, you can high-five each other and hug one another. There's this, this unity that comes just because all of a sudden we're cheering for the same team. You can, you can be unified because, again, you, you like motorcycles or riding your bike and, and, or you like, you like knitting or working on your car. But true, lasting, eternal unity is in Christ. He is the one who brings us together. And he didn't make Gentiles and Jews one new gospel community by simply saying what some of us parents say to our children. Hey, you Gentiles, you need to stop fighting. Just, just hug one another. Get along. Just love one another. I've, I've tried that with my boys sometimes. We're sitting down, Amy and I, we're, we're enjoying um, uh, after dinner, which is really our first dinner, where we're, you know, we're, we're, trying to, we're, we're done trying to feed all the kids. The, cold, the food is cold, and we sit down, and we enjoy like, this, this little date together. Uh, and, and there's chaos in the boys' room. What's going on? Again, somebody's on top of each other. One kid's you know, taking the cheap shot because the two kids are down, and he's jumping on both of them. And hey, hey, stop it. Just get along and love one another. I've seen the fruit of that. It, it doesn't work. So Jesus didn't just say, hey, you know what, Gentiles and Jews, I want you to love one another. I came, I took on flesh, the incarnation happened so that I could just tell you, hey, guys, get along. No, 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 that, 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 does, that doesn't work. That's not what he did. Christ removed the hostility between Gentiles and Jews that repent and believe the gospel by being broken for us, which is what we remember and we celebrate together when we take the Lord's Supper, and we'll be do, doing that to, today. At the cross, Christ took on our hostility. Paul tells us that it is Christ's broken body that has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between us. It's as if Jesus stepped between us and absorbed our hate for one another and replaced it with love. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, we were swinging at each other and in steps Jesus and absorbs that hate and replaces it with love. Verse 15 tells us that Christ removed another major barrier between Jews and Gentiles. He abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. This refers to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament regarding food and drink, festivals, uh, the Sabbath, which is now the Lord's Day in the New Covenant, and it refers to circumcision. In and through the work of Christ, these laws of the Old Covenant that for so long physically separated Jews and Gentiles were abolished. They couldn't sit down and eat a meal together because they ate different foods. They, they couldn't be around each other because they were disgusted and grossed out by the other's habits. I mean, have, have you ever been around somebody who chews with their mouth open and you're like, oh, stop it. I can't eat my food because you can't close your mouth when you're eating your food. I mean, th this was that times a million. They, they couldn't stand each other. They couldn't sit down and enjoy a meal together because of all these old covenant laws, which, which had a purpose, these ceremonial laws. And so we, we see this reality of the, the the ordinances being abolished play out in the book of Acts when Peter is told in a vision, and he has to be told it over and over again, that now all food is clean. You can eat your bacon. You can, you can eat all these foods that for so long you couldn't eat. All foods are now clean. And then we see it playing out again in the, in, in the epistles. Think of Galatians 2, 11 through 13, where Paul rebukes Peter for separating himself from the Gentiles because the circumcision party has come into town. Now in Christ, all foods are clean. You can sit at the same table. All days are holy. You can worship together, and you should worship still on the Lord's day together. All days are holy. And circumcision is no longer done by human hands, but by God. And it's a spiritual circumcision of the heart. These ceremonial laws that had been an enormous wall between Jews and Gentiles were only shadows and types that pointed to the work of Jesus Christ. Now that Christ had come, he had lived a sinless, perfect life. He had died as an atoning sacrifice, a substitute on our behalf at the cross. He was raised from the dead by the Father and the power and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, all of these things are set aside. He fulfilled his earthly mission. These ceremonial laws are abolished. With the distance removed and the barrier destroyed, Christ creates himself 
one new man from the two, resulting in peace. There's no longer division, alienation, separation between those in Christ. There's no longer two groups. There's only one new community formed in and by Christ. This is why Paul can write some some really interesting and sometimes hard to understand things like this in Colossians 3.11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Where do you experience that? In the church. There's still people that come from Greek ancestry, still people that, that have Jewish history, ancestry, there's still people that were circumcised and uncircumcised, and there are today. There's, I, don't, I don't know if we want to walk around calling people barbarians or Scythians, but, but you get the gist of it. There's still, on the outside, these, these things that, that are, are different about us, and yet Paul says here in Colossians 3.11, guess what? Christ is all and in all. He can also say, say in Galatians 3.28, because of this reality of our unity in the church, There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are one in Christ Jesus. Being brought into this new gospel community, into the church, doesn't mean that we lose our backgrounds, our ancestry, our cultures, our skin color. But it does mean that these things don't divide us. At least they shouldn't. It's not as though God just poured us all into a big bowl and he just stirred it all together and dumped it out. There's there's unity still with our diversity, though. Through the cross, Christ reconciles all who repent and believe. That's Gentile and Jew, black and white, old and young, male and female. All in Christ are united, not superficially, but by the cross. When we think of the cross, oftentimes we think of, and we should, the the substituting work of Christ, that he went to the cross to pay for our sins. But here's another element that you should be thinking of when you think of the cross. I've been united to God's people. The cross didn't just unite me to God, it united me to his people. Because Christ killed the hostility between us when he was killed on the cross for us. This peace and unity is not man-made. If it was, it would fall apart. It is cross-bought. The gospel is the only way to bring about lasting unity and true peace. Those who desire unity and peace will never find it outside of Christ. You think of all the calls, even some, some Christians now calling, hey, we need to be united. Even using language that, that the Bible uses in regards to Christians for non-Christians. Now, I'm all for pursuing peace. I'm, I'm all for loving and caring for those, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, protecting life. I'm all for that. But here's the reality. Ephesians and the rest of the Bible tell us there's no true unity or peace without the gospel. We can't be united with, without a heart change. The gospel changes hearts. The only way to truly destroy racism and sexism and ageism and all the other forms of hate and discrimination, division and disunity, is through the cross. Everything else will end up falling apart. Jesus' death ends the hostility. It's the only way. Christ has to do it. We are too weak. We're too selfish. We're too, we're too prone to gathering only with people who look like us, talk like us, think like us, vote like us. We need somebody to come in and not just say, hey guys, get along, to, but to force us into the same community. And that's what God has done. And we, we need to be mindful of this. We would mess this thing up called the church if it were not for Christ. And this reality, church, needs to change not only the way we think, our theology, but it needs to change our practice, our our view of the local church, how we care for and love one another. It needs to challenge our individualism, and that's part of what we want to do in this series. We come from, I think, I I could be wrong, but I think the most individualistically minded society in the history of the world. We're born into that. That's the air that we breathe. That's been shaping our minds for all of our lives. That's that's what you come, when when you come to passages that talk about unity, I don't know about you, but often I do this. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. It's like I'm creating my own way out of pursuing this gospel community that I find in in, in the scriptures. And we need to fight against that. We need to submit to the scriptures. It doesn't mean that we aren't individuals, that we don't have different skin colors or backgrounds. That's not what I'm saying. But it does mean that that our individualism needs to be set aside for what scripture says. We need to breathe in the air of God's word. 
and not just simply soak in and, and go along with the culture. Christ has united us together in his church, means that, that according to God's word, we are more united with one another than we are with anyone who is not in Christ. Just let that truth sink into your heart and into your mind. We are more united with one another than we are with anybody else outside of Christ. Someone might not look like us or talk like us or vote like us or speak the same language as us, be from the same country as us, have the same hobbies as us, work in the same profession as us, eat the same foods we eat, cheer for the same sports teams we cheer for. But if they are in Christ, if they have been born again by the Holy Spirit, if they have turned from their sin and by faith turned to Jesus, then as different as we might seem on the outside, because of Christ, we are united to them, and God has a glorious purpose for this gospel community. Another problem with many of the calls for unity in, in the culture right now, in society, not just in America, but throughout the world, is that it's unity for unity's sake. So, hey, we just need to get along. Why? Because we need to get along so that we would be at peace. Well, why do we want peace? What's the goal? What's the purpose? Just so that we can coexist? That's not God's goal, that we would just get along, that we would just coexist. His goal is that he would be glorified, that he would be put on display before the universe as the awesome, glorious God that he is. And Paul drives this reality of, and purpose of the gospel community that he's created, that, that God has created home in the last section of this morning's passage. And he does it by using three metaphors that are meant to teach us how united we truly are in Christ and, and to show us what God's purpose is for uniting us together in the church because it's far more than just unity or peace. <coughs> First, Paul says that we are no longer strangers and aliens. We are fellow citizens. In Christ, God is expanding his kingdom and not by taking over land. He owns it all. Remember, he's the creator. So we make our lines, we have our, our borders, and there's a purpose for that. I'm not saying that any of that is bad in this fallen world, but it's all God's. The way that God is expanding his kingdom is not by taking over land, it's by adding citizens. In God's kingdom, there are no green cards, there's no illegal aliens, there's no second-class citizens. Every Christian, whether they are from Jewish or Gentile background, whether they're a former drug addict or they were saved when they were three, is a full member, a full citizen in Christ's kingdom. Here, God's kingdom refers to God's special rule over his people. God is our king. We are his citizens. And as citizens, we now enjoy all the blessings that come with being under the rule of Christ. Even as we wait for our sovereign, all-powerful, glorious king to, to return to establish his heavenly kingdom on earth. We are a blessed people. We enjoy privileges and honors that, that those outside of this, this kingdom cannot enjoy. Every sinner saved by God's grace belongs in God's kingdom. Christ purchased their freedom and made them his subject. All in Christ are part of this glorious, eternal, and perfect kingdom that has no end. There's a time when our citizenship in this country or whatever country we have citizenship in will end. But brothers and sisters, this citizenship in God's kingdom never ends. That means we will all be forever united in this kingdom known as God's kingdom. Christ's rule will rule over us forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. We are together in this kingdom. It's good and right to be patriotic. It's good. But we Christians must remember that we are citizens of another heavenly country. And so somehow, someway, that that same patriotic feeling that we have when we think about our country or the country that we're from, if we're from another country, should be how we view the church and being a part of God's kingdom. There's a certain honor, a certain respect, a certain reverence, a certain awe. I am part of this kingdom. I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about heaven. You and me and all who have ever died in Christ or will be added in Christ are part of this kingdom, and it never, ever ends. Next, Paul says that we are members of the household of God. And here's this sweet and wonderful metaphor that we find throughout Scripture. In Christ, God is increasing his household. We have been adopted into God's family. Being brought into this gospel community means that we are part of a spiritual family. It's not very hard to imagine Jews and Gentiles in the same kingdom. I mean, 
in, in a way, when, when the Roman Empire came in and, and took over Israel, they, they were living in the same kingdom. So that's, that's not all that hard to imagine. But it's really hard to imagine Jews and Gentiles in the same family, especially if you're a first century Jew or Gentile. <clears throat> but that is what God has done in the church. All of us Christians have the same heavenly father. As Paul states earlier in verse 18, we all have access to the father by his spirit. The same Holy Spirit who resides in other Christians is in us. Whether we're Jewish or Gentile, whatever our background, same spirit, same father. How sweet is that? In Christ, God has adopted us as his children. So we Christians are brothers and sisters. So in a real way, you know, we, we talk about our brothers and sisters, our earthly families, and, and that's true. We have brothers and sisters if we have siblings that are earthly brothers and sisters. But this language, which kind of creeped me out at first when I became a Christian, why, why does everybody call me a brother? Like, why, why am I your brother? You know, and, and, and men calling women their sister. I was like, you guys are related? I had to kind of, like, I, I came from a church where that wasn't typical language. And now, you know, if you've talked to me, i that's what I use. Hey, what's up, brother? How you doing, brother? Sister? Yeah, sistering. But, but you got to get used to that. But that's the reality. That's the title that we, that we have with one another. That's the, the relationship we have now together as the church. <coughs> Christians are brothers and sisters, a family. What do people in healthy families do? They love one another. They care for each other. They serve and support and encourage and sacrifice for each other. Though we often refer to the church building as the church, I'm going to the church today, or we call corporate worship church, the church is not a building or an event on Sunday morning. The church, Paul tells us, the Bible teaches us, is a family, a group of former orphans, some from far away and some from near, that by God's grace have been brought into the same spiritual family. If you're a Christian, this metaphor needs to color your view of a local church. You don't, just, you, don't, you don't just come to this building and say, yep, that was great, good sermon. You know, I rate that six or seven out of, out of, a, out of ten. You now that would be okay. Uh, th- that, that's not your mindset if, if you get this metaphor. You don't treat the church like it's a drive-through restaurant for all your spiritual needs. It's, a, it's some service provider to, to give you a little pick-me-up. If you're a Christian, the church isn't a coffee shop. It's your spiritual family. And for some of us, we need a better grasp of that. That that reality, this truth, we might theologically say, yep, I agree. You can't argue with it. It's there in Scripture. Well, how does that affect your life? How does that affect your day-to-day? How does that affect the, the way you view the people that you're coming in to church with? Now, some of us, I know, are estranged from family members. Some of us have, have felt very distant from family Some of us don't really have a lot of earthly family. And yet when we come and gather together as a local church on Sunday mornings, that's what we're meeting with. We're meeting with our spiritual family. And and, and I want that to increase among us, that understanding and then the implications of that reality. When we're walking into church together, and and obviously there's visitors, there's there's new attenders, there's non-Christians, but if you know that person, if they're a member of the church, if if you've gotten to know their their testimony, you're, you're walking in with your brother, your sister in Christ. It's like a family reunion every single Sunday morning. And not with people that, that you're annoyed with. Well, maybe you need, you need to get over your annoyance. Not with people that you don't like. People that are your brothers and sisters in Christ, that have, that have been united to you by the cross. Do you get this? Do you believe this? Are you living in light of this truth? Because we need to be church. Well, the third metaphor that Paul uses in verses 20 through 22 might, might seem a bit strange to many of us, but to Paul's original audience, well, it would, have been, it would have made great sense. God is building a temple, and we are his stones. The temple in Jerusalem was, was the place where God's presence uniquely dwelt among his people. It was the center of worship and the physical place where God's people went to make sacrifices for their sins. But when Christ came, the, the old temple became obsolete, for Christ is God in the flesh, and, and we commune with and, and through Christ. His death was the perfect and final sacrifice that truly takes away our sins. You don't need to sacrifice the lamb of the temple anymore because the lamb of God was slain for our sins. And so now Paul says that God is building a new temple made up not of physical stones, but of people. And, and just like any other building project, whether it's a church garage or a temple, there's a process to this building. 
In verse 20, Paul says that the foundation of this temple is the apostles and prophets, the teachers of God's word, the, one that, the ones that God used to give us God's word. And the church is built on and by God's word. As the word goes forth, the church is built. And next we're told that Christ is the cornerstone. Without Christ, this temple couldn't be built and it, and it would crumble. The church is built on Christ. Jesus' person and work are the cause of our unity and our growth. Then Paul compares God's people to stones, telling us that those in Christ are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's beautiful. That, that's what God is doing with this unity that he has brought in the church. He's building a temple, brick after brick. He's, he's putting it together. And we are, we are the ones that, that he's putting together and building this temple with. Next week, we'll be in 1 Peter, and, and we'll see something similar, because in 1 Peter Peter describes the church as living stones. This imagery is so helpful for us because we can be so, so individualistic when it comes to our view of Christianity and the church. But this metaphor doesn't allow us to be. We, we Christians are being built together to be a dwelling place for God. God is picking us up out of our sin and putting us where he wants us, like a master mason picks up a brick to carefully place it exactly where it needs to go. In the old temple, Gentiles were not allowed past the first court. But now in Christ, they have become part of God's temple. A temple where God's presence will not be limited to one place or to one group of people, but to all who trust in Christ. God has united us together in order to build us together. Church, in summary, from this passage, we are reminded that Christ is the cause and source of our unity. We did not unite ourselves. This church did not happen by accident, the universal church or this local church. Christ has done it. He has brought us together into a new gospel community called the church. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 lays out the foundation and the reality of this gospel community. You've got to wrestle with it. You've got to think about it. You've got to seek to apply it. And if we really believe that we are fellow citizens in God's kingdom, members of his household, stones in his temple— well, it's going to make community a priority. It's not going to be optional, and it's going to increase our love for one another because we're going to look at each other differently. Gospel community is not optional. You don't get Jesus without his church because when Christ saved you, he didn't just bring you out of something. He brought you into something, into a people. Brother, sister in Christ, he brought you into his church. We Christians are called by God to live our lives in light of this reality. And with the next two sermons, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking more closely at how God calls us in his word to live in gospel community together for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. God, I know that we as a church, me as an individual, and many other Christians that are in this church need a better, bigger, greater, more biblical view of gospel community. I do pray, Lord, that you would keep us humble willing to learn, teachable, that we would submit to your scripture, that where we are challenged with our own privacy, our own desire to do our own thing, you would give us strength and, and grace and understanding so that we would not shrink back from community, but we would really wrestle with how we have viewed the church. Father, I pray that you would overcome our own, our own views and opinions with your word and that you would help us as a church to grow in grace together as a gospel community. I pray in, in the future sermons that you would use your word to help us see things more clearly. And of course, we pray this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.